This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good good afternoon and good evening to those of you who are east of the United States. I'm Elliot Kola of Georgetown University, and I'm here to welcome you to today's event on the current crisis in Egypt. Egypt is a country now suffering under severe repression under the regime of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Before we begin, let me say how proud we are to thank the good organizations which have sponsored this event, including MERAP, or the Middle East Research and Information Project, the Arab Studies Institute, Internationalism from Below, Democracy for the Arab World Now, or DAWN, and finally, the generous folks at Haymarket Books, whose labor and dedication has made this event possible. Thank you, and thank you all for coming. This panel today was organized by the U.S. Committee to End Political Repression in Egypt. This committee is made up of a group of U.S.-based activists, scholars, and researchers who are alarmed by the increasing levels of political repression in Egypt and by the fact that U.S. tax dollars go a long way to make this repression possible. Americans may not think of Egypt each and every day, but they might. Egypt is the second largest recipient of American military financing at $1.3 billion each year, or $3.5 million per day. Since 1978, we've given Egyptian dictators over $51 billion of military aid. That's a lot of money to be sending to the kleptocratic generals in Cairo. Only Israel receives more aid than Egypt. But this is no coincidence. Egypt stands shoulder to shoulder with Israel and Saudi Arabia in support of U.S. ambitions in the region. For decades, that imperial project has entailed many dirty alliances with brutal authoritarian rulers like Hosni Mubarak and attacks on pro-democracy movements, whether in Palestine, Bahrain, or Egypt. We believe that these alliances do not represent the values of American citizens, nor do they serve any American economic interest, save those of the petroleum and arms corporations. U.S. policy toward Egypt serves neither the U.S. citizenry nor that of Egypt, but rather something else. This is well known, at least in Egypt. Only a decade ago, Egyptian revolutionaries acted on this knowledge when they took uh, they shook off their chains of authoritarian rule. Unfortunately, that experiment in liberation did not last. Two years later, the chains of military rule were slapped on again when the Egyptian army seized power in the summer of 2013. Ever since the regime of President Assisi has undertaken a campaign of mass incarceration and widespread political repression. Most human rights organizations estimate the current population of political prisoners in Egypt to be around 70,000, although some think that the number of 100,000 is more accurate. Others give even higher estimates. Whatever the exact number, The regime's appetite for bodies is so voracious that since 2016, it has constructed 30 new penitentiaries to hold them all. Not surprisingly, 
CC's Gulag has targeted civil society activists and journalists, and also the lawyers who represent them in court. But the CC regime also routine, routinely imprisons anyone whose speech, writing, or behavior expresses the slightest criticism or deviation from its official line. An Egyptian might be snatched into the incarceration machine at any moment, from doctors who have spoken out about deficiency in COVID-19 treatment to lawyers investigating official corruption, from middle-aged Facebook posters to teenage TikTok influencers. Prisoners of conscience are regularly disappeared, locked in solitary confinement, held without trial, and denied access to food, health care, and family visits. Tortured is widespread. To speak about any of these problems in Egypt means exposing yourself to the talons of the Egyptian prison system. Despite this, Western countries continue to maintain warm relations with the Egyptian state. In December, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, presented Sisi with the country's highest public award. Only the last few years, President Trump famously referred to Sisi as his favorite dictator. Sadly, there is no sign that the U.S.-Egyptian relations will be of any different under the Biden administration. A few weeks ago, the State Department approved a $197 million missile sale to Egypt. Again, things do not have to be this way. Americans do not have to pay for this. Egypt should be free, and a free Egypt would, in short, transform the region. In short, another world is possible. These are things that the U.S. Committee to End Political Repression in Egypt believes in and will be working toward in the coming months, and we look forward to seeing you at other events. Now onto our panel. We have the three distinguished speakers today, and I will introduce them in the order in which they will be speaking. Speaking first, will be Sarah Lee Whitson, Executive Director of the organization Democracy for the Arab World Now. Previously, she served as Executive Director of the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, overseeing its work in 19 countries. She has led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and human rights. Our second speaker will be Hussein Bayoumi, researcher on Egypt and Libya for Amnesty International. Prior to joining Amnesty, Hussein was a fellow with the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy in Washington, D.C., and programs director at the Egyptian Commission for Rights and Freedoms in Egypt. Our third presenter today will be Mohamed Sultan, human rights activist and former political prisoner in Egypt. Mohamed was imprisoned in the crackdown on pro-democracy activists following the 2013 coup d'etat. He subsequently engaged in a 489-day hunger strike to protest his unjust imprisonment and was released only in May 2015. Presently, he is co-founder of the Freedom Initiative, a human rights organization dedicated to the release of political prisoners in the Middle East. After each speaker has had an opportunity to make their presentation, we'll have a broader conversation among the panelists that will be followed by a question and answer period. Again, if you have questions for our panelists, please put them into the comments and we will do our best to reply to all of them. Thank you. Sarah, let's begin. 
Sorry about that. I uh, was muted for the muting for the quality of the sound. Um, uh, as I was saying, there's been so much attention uh, paid to the situation uh, in the U.S. relationship uh, with Saudi Arabia uh, in recent months, even recent years, but very little uh, to Egypt, where arguably the United States is even more culpable in the abuse and repression of the country's dictatorship. Uh, I know my uh, fellow panelists will discuss in greater detail the harsh reality of Egypt's repression and the unprecedented number of political prisoners uh, held in the country today. Um, but I wanted to focus on some of the broader issues uh, that um, uh, pertain to America's relationship uh, with Egypt. And, you know, starting with the very basic question of why this should matter to us. Uh, you know, bad things happen the world over. Repression is rife in so many countries, mass detentions of Uyghurs, imprisonment of political leaders in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, the coup in Myanmar, and so forth. Why, why does Egypt deserve our particular attention? Uh, and I think the answer uh, is because our government and our tax dollars uh, are not passive observers to what happens in Egypt. We are actively aiding and abetting the repressive abuses in Egypt. Uh, we are not actively aiding and abetting uh, the abuses in China or Russia uh, or Iran and so forth. Um, as was just noted by Elliot, since 1979, the United States has provided an annual gift of over a billion dollars, plus roughly $500 million in economic aid uh, to successive dictatorships in Egypt as their bribe or reward for having made peace with Israel and part of the so-called Camp David formula. This, of course, is similar to the bribes and rewards the United States is now paying to the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco and Sudan for quote unquote, normalizing with Israel. Um, of course, it's another conversation uh, in which we'd have to address why the U.S. is paying for these bribes that benefit at most the governments of these countries, but not the American people. When General Sisi led a coup against Egypt's only elected government headed by Mohamed Morsi, Secretary Kerry refused to call it a coup because that would have triggered an automatic suspension uh, of aid uh, to Egypt. America's military and economic aid, coupled with the diplomatic support that we provide, uh, gives the Sisi dictatorship uh, political protection and political support from the United States. Our aid bolsters the dictatorship to know that whatever it does internally, however much it tortures, disappears, and executes people, the U.S. has its back and remains its supporter. It provides military support to the military dictatorship, which also, of course, monopolizes much of the economy, so it can remain an unchallenged dictatorship in the country. Under international human rights law, contributing to human rights abuses, like we're doing in Egypt by supporting this government, is itself a human rights violation. So the U.S. is contributing to abuses in Egypt when it supports this abusive, unrepresentative, autocratic dictatorship. The U.S. is also violating U.S. law, and I don't just mean the Leahy law, uh, which limits arms transfers to military units uh, found to have used U.S. weapons abusively, but more broadly under the Arms Export Control Act, which, though never enforced, specifically prohibits arms transfers to governments that systematically abuse human rights. Our goal at dawn is to revive application of this law. So what's happening in Egypt is our responsibility. 
And it's a simple proposition. We should stop harming the people of Egypt because that's what human rights law requires and that's what US law requires. I want to address some of the counter arguments that are made uh, to this simple and clear proposition, um, starting with the notion of conditionality. The classic liberal progressive formulation of the past several decades, uh, the past, I should say, failed formulation, uh, which has been handily relied on by successive democratic administrations, self-proclaimed human rights oriented administrations, has been to argue that the U.S. should maintain its aid to Egypt, but condition the aid on so-called human rights reforms. This is often accompanied by calls on the United States to pressure Egypt uh, to make reforms reforms, release prisoners on the thesis that the United States has leverage by virtue of its military support to the government on which the dictatorship depends. Uh, if I had a dime for every human rights report that called on the U.S. to pressure Egypt, I would be very, very rich today, but I'm not. Uh, Debunking this faulty argument is one of Don's focus areas because it actually works to justify the continued harmful aid to the dictatorship without achieving any meaningful reforms while propagating the false notion that the U.S. is trying to promote human rights and democracy. It lets the U.S. government pretend and or the advocacy community to buy into the pretense that the United States is trying uh, to use its leverage and pressure uh, for human rights reforms and democracy. We have to start with the recognition that repression in Egypt is not accidental and it's not a byproduct of particular excesses, uh, but are deliberate and essential to the survival of Egypt's dictatorship. It has not been missed by General Sisi that the revolution in Egypt emerged in the wake of Mubarak's loosening the political space in the country. Like all of the dictators of the region, Sisi recognizes it's a zero-sum game. It's him against his citizens. The more freedoms, the more rights for the Egyptian people means the more risk he will be overthrown. His existence depends on absolute repression, much more so even than his predecessors. That's why it will never be for Sisi to accept demands for reform. Faced with losing military aid and losing power, he will always give up the aid naturally. Instead, he offers up the release of a few unjustly detained prisoners when the U.S. amps up its rhetoric, only to turn around and arrest several replacement prisoners the following day. They're valuable chits to be offered up for the next round of reform demands. One can see why the arrests of U.S. nationals are a particularly valuable playing card for him. Uh, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we incentivizing these arrests uh, when we call on the U.S. to use its leverage and pressure to demand releases? What's more, Whatever conditions the U.S. Congress tries to impose uh, are routinely waived by the executive branch on the basis of so-called national security interests. Indeed, with all but one very narrow and brief exception, every single instant of efforts to cut aid based on breached conditions have been waived by successive administrations, Democrat and Republican. This year's latest aid package of $1.325 billion includes a new condition that many activists pushed hard for. $75 million of the economic aid is conditioned on human rights reforms that can't be waived. That's considered a breakthrough, 
That's less than 5% of the aid. It obviously has a tiny bit of symbolic significance, but nowhere near the significance of over $1 billion in unconditional military aid that will continue unimpeded no matter how much General Sisi terrorizes his people. When the it's not so bad in Egypt actually arguments fail, such as the op-ed we recently saw by David Ignatius in the Washington Post, and the we're conditioning aid for reforms arguments fail, the ultimate defense is used to justify continued aid to Egypt. And let's just call it what it is, uh, the arguments used to justify the continued abuse of the Egyptian people on what I like to call the big boy talk. Real politique. We're urged to put aside our naivete and recognize that human rights must be balanced against security interests or geopolitical considerations and the blanket catch-all other factors will only allude to without identifying specifically. I'd like to propose that these arguments about U.S. interests are lazy and stale and they're extremely dangerous to the Egyptian people to the people of the Middle East, and to Americans as well. They rely on unexamined, decades-old assumptions about U.S. interests in Egypt that don't withstand any serious scrutiny. Successive State Department staff and the foreign policy blob that surrounds it have failed to update and overhaul their arguments in a way that matches an appropriate understanding of modern-day strategic and security interests that will not repeat the failures of the last several decades. First of all, Israel no longer needs us to bribe Egypt to maintain their peace. Their alliance is closer than our alliances with each of them. They conduct joint military operations in Sinai. They collaborate on the closure and imprisonment of the Palestinians of Gaza. Uh, the Egyptian army even shoots dead migrants from Africa trying to reach Israel on Israel's behalf. In today's recalibrated alliances of the region, the Egypt-Israel-Saudi-UAE alliance doesn't need American help. Ending U.S. military assistance does not mean that ending the U.S. relationship with Egypt. Um, this has been one of the straw man arguments I've often heard uh, when uh, it's recommended that U.S. military aid to Egypt stop. You want us to end our relationship with Egypt? No. We want to normalize the relationship with Egypt. As other countries do, we can pay for U.S. access to the Suez Canal on a per-use basis. We can pay for overflight rights. It's absurd that America's price tag for Suez access is higher than any other country in the world at over a billion dollars a year. We can pay for these things that we need that is in America's interest without providing military support and diplomatic cover to the Egyptian dictatorship. We can also continue counterterrorism cooperation to the extent that it's in the interests of both our countries. Nothing impedes that. Might Egypt purchase weapons from Russia or China or the UK or France, which is probably more likely? It already is purchasing weapons from them, despite the threat of US punishment. It is free to continue to do so. It doesn't justify America's contributions to Egyptian horrors. What US military aid is really about, and let's say the quiet part out loud, is maintaining U.S. domination and control over the entire Middle East region, part and parcel of the expanded global domination by the United States all over the world, with more military bases in more countries, more sanctions on more countries than all of the other countries of the world combined. 
This is about the failed and outdated strategy of U.S. empire, which hasn't served the people of the region, hasn't served Americans whose tax dollars are wasted on a bloated defense machine raining rubble all over the Middle East. It's important to see the intersections, just as the failed policies of brutal policing and mass incarceration have failed the black and brown people of America, the failed policies of militarization and domination have failed the black and brown people of the Middle East. Indeed, the American people would be better served with a broad recalibration of our adolescent violent obsession with global hegemony, particularly in the Middle East. Thank you uh, for giving me an opportunity to make these remarks. Thank you, Sarah Lee. Hussein. Thanks, Edith and Sarah. Um, and thanks, everyone, for uh, whoever is listening. Uh, so, okay, so I mean, so just to move uh, from from what Sarah was talking about, actually talking about the real impact of what's really um, happening in Egypt in terms of human rights, Really, it's a human rights crisis. That's just the, uh, the most, the easier way to describe the situation in Egypt. Uh, since the military took over power in mid-2013, they have went on an unprecedented uh, crackdown during which they have committed a variety of human uh, rights violations and crimes, um, starting in the very early on with the Rabah uh, massacre, which to date not a single uh, police officer has been um, held accountable. And then they continued on over the years to to, um, to arrest uh, hundreds um, and then thousands and then tens of thousands um, of opponents and perceived opponents um, during the, the early period. Uh, some people were referred to trial and given um, ridiculous sentences uh, in unfair trials, um, but also a lot of the people that were um, at, at arrested at the time, they have been in enforced disappearance since then. Like We don't know uh, what has happened uh, to them since their arrest, even 2013 um, and 14. Um, as the years uh, went on, uh, we began to see uh, in Egypt uh, the rise of uh, extended or prolonged pre-trial detention or, pro or pre-trial detention without an end of sight. Um, and this is a more dominant um, pattern that we see in Egypt nowadays, where we see that um, opponents and perceived, uh, real perceived opponents, um, critics, journalists, human rights defenders, um, activists, um, families of uh, activists and so on, they, they, keep, they are arrested and then subjected to enforced disappearances for days, weeks, or months, and then they appear in front of the Supreme State Security Prosecution, um, where they are accused of uh, terrorism-related charges, usually in the form of uh, three uh, uh, charges, uh, membership in a terrorist group, uh, spreading false news, um, and misuse social media to commit these crimes, where they are then uh, detained pending investigations for, without really any uh, real hope of being uh, referred to trial. Um, at all. And it's also important to note that the people that uh, are in these um, cases, uh, they, in many cases, there is actually no evidence uh, presented against them at all. The majority of these cases rely on secret NSA investigation files, which neither lawyers uh, nor the defendants themselves are allowed to see it. So actually, there are a lot of people in Egypt nowadays that they are detained and they don't even know exactly why they are detained. This is a situation for thousands um, of people in Egypt. 
And it takes us to an important point also in Egypt, uh, is that the Egyptian authorities have went to great lengths to hide the number of uh, political prisoners in Egypt. How many political prisoners in Egypt, for example? The short answer is that no one really knows because it's, it's Egypt is extremely untransparent about uh, this practice. And they go to great lengths to silence families, to silence human rights defenders who talk about that issue. Uh, for example, um, consider that even, even something as simple as the number of prisons in Egypt, it is considered as a state secret and it's actually not to, and it's not a known thing because, for example, Egypt, they, they divide their, the ways that they um, govern prisons. So you have the normal prisons, which are under the Ministry of Interior as a prison sector, but also you have a lot of prisons that are not under the prison sector where they are instead under different uh, police stations or different security directorates. And then you also have a lot of unofficial places of detention where people are being held, which include NSA investigation, uh, NSA um, HQs, NSA uh, offices. It includes uh, military prisons. It includes um, central security forces camps and so on. So really a lot of people that, um, that are arrested in Egypt Every day, or subject to enforced disappearance, we don't know. We don't have, um, we don't have uh, an image or <clears throat> um, an accurate estimation of uh, of how many people exactly are detained or are disappeared in Egypt, precisely because of how bad the repression is in Egypt. Again, to give you an example <clears throat> of how bad it is, um, just days, uh, just weeks ago, actually, uh, a mother and her child, uh, her three years old child, they appeared in front of the Supreme State Security Prosecution uh, in Egypt. And <clears throat> when they appeared, uh, we actually have uh, documented their disappearance two years ago. For two years, um, security forces, they have uh, abducted uh, a mother, a one-year-old, and the father, and they kept them, they kept the mother and the baby um, in a room where they, for two years before their appearance, while the father, until today, no one knows um, what happened to him. We don't know his fate, and the authorities continue to deny um, his fate and whereabouts. Um, but even and even those that are actually in official places of detention, um, prisons under uh, the observation of the Ministry of Interior, for example, or prisons under the ministry is, um, in the prison sector, for example, they are subjected to extremely inhumane uh, conditions of detention, and in many cases that amount to torture. Um, and so, for example, we, we, were, we released a report um, earlier this year, on the 25th of January, uh, where we examined conditions of detention uh, across prisons. Um, and we found that, first of all, uh, a lot of the cells that we uh, that we have seen, um, a lot of the cells that, uh, where people are detained, for example, they are filthy, uh, they lack adequate uh, accommodations, there is poor ventilation, uh, substandard sanitation, um, high substandard hygiene, there is a shortage of uh, food, and there is very little access to fresh air and exercise. Uh, a lot of the people that, uh, for example, that we spoke to, uh, or their families or representative, um, particularly um, people with uh, political backgrounds, they were even subjected to even more restrictive treatments uh, inside the prison in what seems to be uh, an attempt to um, uh, to to harm them mentally and physically. For example, uh, we saw that uh, a lot of political prisoners have been subjected to solitary confinement, indefinite solitary confinement, including uh, people who have been in solitary confinement for, for years and years. In the case, for example, of Abdel Menem al who is uh, in his 60s, uh, an opposition, a major opposition uh, figure that has been arrested arbitrarily or, and since then has been detained uh, pending investigation. He has not been referred to trial so far um, and uh, his detention has bypassed even Egyptian law on pretrial detention. 
Um, now, since his detention, he has been in solitary confinement since uh, his detention. He has been denied adequate uh, treatments that he requires, um, or uh, that he has uh, that he has been getting before uh, even being detained because of underlying uh, health concerns. And we are still concerned about his health. During one of the uh, of the questioning, uh, he actually he he told the prosecutors that they are trying his a the NSA uh, trying to kill me or uh, make me go insane. And indeed, a lot of people. Have died uh, inside prisons uh, over the last few years in many cases uh, due to inadequate uh, medical care, but in, in also in other cases through the forced or denial, uh, deliberate denial of medical care. Um, of course, there has not been um, any investigations uh, in these cases uh, where the perpetrators for these crimes have not been uh, held accountable at all. Uh, we also saw uh, in prisons that another tool that security forces use to um, to punish political prisoners, for example, is to harm them or to prevent them from seeing their family members at all. This includes uh, preventing uh, some people from receiving a single family visit during their detention for three or even four years. Um, the former uh, President Mohamed Morsi, who died uh, in custody as well. Uh, during uh, the duration of his detention from mid-2013 until his death, he was only allowed three times uh, to call to see his family uh, inside prison. Um, the authorities also do not allow families uh, and prisoners to communicate through uh, phone calls at all. Uh, the only way that, uh, they, <clears throat> that they allow them uh, nowadays, uh, citing COVID concerns, is through either one visit uh, per month for one person for 20 minutes um, or through letters. But not all political prisoners are allowed uh, to send and receive letters. And likewise, not all political prisoners uh, are, are allowed to receive uh, family visits uh, at all. Another tool that the authorities also uh, use uh, in prisons uh, is uh, deliberate denial of medical care. For example, we saw that with uh, Ziad al Alimi, who has been who is, um, a former parliamentarian who has been detained, also pending investigation, uh, just because he was trying to uh, to coordinate a coalition to run for election uh, for parliamentary elections, and he has been detained pending investigation over again terrorism charges. And inside prison, it's not enough that the authorities have detained him, but they actually continue to deny him from adequate medical care. Um, even so, he offered, for example, to pay uh, on his own uh, expenses, but security forces are denying him uh, the right to receive uh, adequate medical care. Um, this has also been very problematic when it comes to COVID, um, because the Egyptian authorities with COVID, as with other issues, they have, instead of trying to address the issue um, in a transparent manner uh, while communicating with all relevant stakeholders, the response was to try to hide information um, about um, the extent of COVID-19 pandemic uh, in Egypt. And in prisons, it's even worse, where they are actually have been consistently denying that there are even COVID-19 cases in prison, even so. Amnesty International and others, uh, other human rights organizations have documented cases of people that have contracted um, uh, COVID-19-like uh, symptoms in prison, people who actually died inside prison following uh, or shortly after uh, release from prison following exhibiting symptoms similar to uh, COVID-19. And this situation in prisons, it's it's also very problematic because bodies that should be doing their 
um, uh, oversight rules, they have been failing to do so. So the prosecution, which has the power to uh, to monitor prisons, for example, they rarely exercise this power. And when even when they exercise that power, this does not lead to improvement in conditions of detention. And this definitely does not lead to uh, any investigations into allegations of torture, ill-treatment, uh, or inhumane conditions of detention. Even when prisoners or, um, or detainees they tell prosecutors very directly or even file cases against specific uh, officers, they are rarely uh, taken over. And in particular, when they are against uh, NSA officers, it's almost impossible uh, to see the um, uh, prosecutors investigating that. The, I mean, they have even went further. So, for example, families uh, families that have uh, been that protested, for example, or tried to um, to campaign to receive um, letters or to be able to allow to communicate with their detained family members, authorities have actually went after them. They have even arrested them. So now, so now, Senate safe uh, human rights defender and activist who has been trying to receive a letter from her detained um, activist brother Al Abdel Fattah. She has been uh, beaten. Uh, she has been uh, um, abducted in the middle of the street from the in front of the office of the public prosecutor, and now she's facing a uh, trial over um, charges of insulting a police officer while trying to do um, his work, for example. The authorities have also attempted to whitewash uh, the crimes that they have been um, committing and the conditions of detention, for, and they have been doing so um, one way through a lot of videos, uh, propaganda videos, and uh, pre-organized uh, trips to uh, journalists and so on to prisons. Um, in what uh, in what journalists that we spoke to, as well as uh, the detainees that were there at the time, have described as quite surreal. Uh, quite surreal scenes where police officers and policemen basically try to paint an unrealistic uh, image of um, prison. But also another thing that they have been trying to do is through uh, silencing um, human rights defenders. Um, and even if human rights defenders are not inside the country, if, even if they are outside the country, they try to intimidate them, for example, through going after their families um, or trying to defame them um, and so on. And then they also, um, since uh, this is mainly a US, uh, audience, I think it's an important thing to also talk about here is uh, um, that the Egyptian authorities also rely on um, lobbyists in uh, DC, for example, to try to paint uh, an unrealistic image, um, for example, of the conditions of detention, but also of the wider um, human rights situation um, in Egypt. And maybe just uh, because uh, just before uh, closing, I think it's important to note um, in the end that first, the crisis in Egypt, human rights crisis in Egypt is not an isolation. It's extremely important that the timing uh, when we have seen the deterioration of human rights uh, in Egypt. I mean, this has coincided with silence from the international uh, community globally, not just in the U.S. under the Trump administration, but also um, in Europe. And the Egyptian authorities have been uh, very actively trying to. Uh, uh, to push messages that Egypt is controlling migration, Egypt, uh, Egypt is fighting terrorism, um, uh, and that Egypt is protecting the rights uh, of Copts and minorities and women groups that the current government is also repressing, um, in order to ensure that uh, the you know, like US as well as Europe would not really be very vocal uh, or would not take concrete measures uh, to, on the human rights situation in Egypt. And they have succeeded for the large part over the last few years in doing so, which have allowed them to continue committing more and more human rights violations to the point we have reached uh, nowadays. 
And then, but to end on a happy note, um, I would say that actually when we saw very recently that when um, states come together uh, to coordinate action um, on uh, human rights in Egypt, we have seen that this can actually lead to positive outcomes. Um, in the end of 2020, we saw how security forces arrested three directors from the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights. And after the, after meetings that they had with several uh, European uh, diplomats, and after that, we saw a very strong uh, international campaign where we saw a lot of states um, coordinating uh, action and uh, taking uh, strong positions, public positions on the human rights situation uh, in Egypt. The message was very clear to, uh, clear to the Egyptian authorities that failure to address that particular issue could lead to um, concrete measures, which Egyptian authorities want to avoid. And indeed, the three men um, were released. But now what we need to see is that we need to see more states taking more uh, concrete actions and perhaps the, the, the most or the nearest uh, opportunity to do so is um, the Human Rights United Nations, the Human Rights Council sessions that's happening uh, at the moment, where we are calling for all the states um, and the international community uh, to take uh, joint action uh, on the human rights situation in Egypt to establish a monitoring and reporting mechanism um, on the situation in Egypt. Thank you, Hussein. Thank you, Hussein. Uh, Mohammed, your turn. Jump in. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alia. I will, uh, I think uh, Hussein and Sara covered a lot of grounds and uh, not, not, not much for me to chime in. And so I'll leave some for uh, some time for a Q&A. Um, just, just something that I think, I think is really important to highlight is, um, you know, we talked about where the repression starts, but what I think in sort of trying to figure out this, the, the psychology of the regime and how um, their the repression is widespread. Uh, now it's even beyond its borders. I, I you know, uh, my family was targeted multiple times in the last year for my U.S. activism in an effort to try to silence me. Sharif Mansour's cousin, uh, Rida, was, was arrested. Ali Mahdi's uh, family members are still in prison, a Chicago-based uh, uh, activist and blogger. And so we're seeing that the sort of repression tactics that were used at home are now are being used extraterritorially. Uh, uh, they're, they're sort of sending a message uh, across the world to folks in exile and in and, and, and the diaspora that the arm of the state can reach you anywhere. And if we can't reach you, we'll get your family. And that has deterred a lot of people from speaking out, but not just deterred a lot of people from, from speaking out. It's also, uh, um, it's also making it so that there's self-censorship where this, if, if you can imagine the dictatorship and authoritarianism uh, and, and the ruthlessness of this, the CC regime has reached uh, all the way to, you know, the, 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 the suburbs of, of DC and the sort of uh, outskirts of Chicago and, and LA and, and the, the the fact that some people are self-censoring, the fact that the, the, that the Egyptian regime can limit the freedoms um, of people living in the United States and in Europe where these rights are guaranteed is a very, very scary thought because of the repercussions that it may have on on. Uh, um, you know, on their families or or on any assets they may have. And so it, how does that happen? And, and how did we get here? I think 
yes, to sort of rewind back to 2013 and and sort of come, you know, uh, all the way up until 2021. And I think, you know, uh, um, both Hussein and Sada really, you know, sort of hit the nail on the head with this impunity, with this lack of accountability. Sisi in 2014 promised in a leaked video, promised his soldiers that not a single, he said, he says, shoot, nobody will be held accountable. That quote right there has been the sort of unofficial law governing Egypt um, for every single crime that it has committed. Not a single person has been held accountable for a single crime since 2013 until today. Not just that. Officers who are more ruthless, politicians who get used as pawns to give cover, prosecutors who give the legal sort of, uh, uh, you know, they, they go through the process of doing these farce, uh, you know, uh, um, interrogations and, and, and sort of falsify statements about political prisoners, about, about uh, opposition and those who want to, they want to target um, ministers, uh, ministers that uh, give this sort of civilian, again, uh, farce uh, of a government uh, to, 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 to sort of justify this crackdown, judges who hand down extreme sentences, all of these things, these people are not just, it's not just that they're not held accountable. There's a patronage system that rewards bad behavior. And so you can, you, you elevate up in the system if you're more ruthless, if you are voluntarily repressing, if you're voluntarily sort of going with the overall CC agenda. And that's really scary. So, for example, you have... Um, the, the the head of the national security prosecutor, uh, uh, man, I'm, I just literally his name was at the tip of my tongue, who uh, was was the, the 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 prosecutor for the national security agency um, uh, prosecutor. He he literally until 2019, from 2013 to 2019. That means uh, that means he has signed every single arrest order. He has signed every single. Uh, renewed detention for, of arbitrary detention. He has signed the court, uh, the 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 court, uh, um, the court documents that transfer people to, to to criminal court, and he has done all of this. This man was rewarded. Now he's currently a minister level head of illicit gains. Uh, Hazim Biblawi uh, becomes prime minister, signs off on the dispersal of the Rabaa massacre, and. Uh, signs, uh, ratifies the protest law on which it was used to sort of arrest tens of thousands of people. This man is rewarded with a high-paying job, prestigious position in uh, 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 in the IMF. Um, this patronage system, which again rewards bad behavior, so we're not even there in terms of accountability and 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 sort of transparent. We're we're it's it's an even worse system. Um, of of the regime sort of uh, uh, rewarding bad behavior and rewarding repression, and I think you know I, I definitely agree with Sara that there's it's because these these uh, uh, Western governments, uh, European and U.S. governments have continuously rewarded bad behavior of these regimes with continued military aid, continued economic support when they know that is the entire system is corrupt. I mean the, the current the current Prime Minister of Egypt is someone that. Hisham Genena, who was the head of the the, the oversight uh, committee, was uh, accused when he was minister of housing for being corrupt, and then 
uh, and, and is paying a price. He's now uh, languishing in, in a military prison because he outed the corruption of the housing minister. And that minister, so the person, the whistleblower ended up being in a military prison and the housing minister becomes prime minister. And now he's this technocrat that's, you know, he's the face of Egypt's civilian government. So you have a patronage system in Egypt that's rewarding bad behavior, reflective of the way Western governments have treated uh, uh, um, uh, the Egyptian regime. And so it sort of manifests itself and it's not anything that's surprising. The second point I want to raise is how different repression tools are, are sort of tapered or scaled, because I think this point is missed a lot. And I'm going to be extremely blunt about it. Islamists are used as lab rats for CC regimes' repression tactics. Plain and simple. And every repression tactic, every repression tool, whether it is uh, 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 putting them on the terror lists and using that to arrest people, to extrajudicially kill people, to enforcely disappear people, to every single to, the, to to go after people's families uh who 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 are active overseas to to arrest their family members to try and rendition to try the interpol every single domestic and international repression tool has first been tested on islamists and when and it usually happens the international community is silent then they start expanding that repression tool to other sectors of Egyptian society. And so we have seen this over and over and over again, where you they, they started off with killing over a thousand people on a single day in Rabah and the international in broad daylight on live camera. I was there, I was shot. And the world did nothing. The world did nothing until today. Absolutely nothing. And then they moved on to arbitrary detentions. They moved on to ratifying terrorism laws, on ratifying protest laws. And then we started 2014 on, we started seeing some of the arbitrary detentions of civil society members, of human rights defenders, of different political dissidents. And they moved on to every single sector of society even uh, sort of digging way deep into the, the, the state and anyone who was a dissident or had a dissenting voice that didn't agree with this brute force as a way of governing Egypt. Um, uh, uh, people within the regime themselves, people who aren't, I mean, it's kind of crazy. The, the uh, uh, Sisi's former boss in the military is on house arrest, Sami Anan, and was in prison. The, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Khalid Fawzi is on house arrest, the former, uh, the head of intelligence. And so you, you see these repression tools and we're still continuing to see it when nobody, and, and, and I, I, this is me after coming out of prison and I'm guilty of this as well. And we all are. When this transnational repression, this extraterritorial targeting of dissidents and their families was being was targeting Islamists that are in Turkey or in other places. We sort of, you know, we were documenting, we were raising it, but not as much, all of this. It wasn't until it hit home that 
we then started saying, oh shit, it's, it's literally at our doorsteps. And, 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 and so I think to reverse that, we need to look at the repression tool itself because the, the repression tool, the legalized repression tools that they're using, the, the, it, these are systemic problems that we need to address and not just that are going to you know, be applicable to this person there because they're famous or that person there because we know them and we're friends. We, we need to address the sort of like how this repression has been completely legalized, has been enshrined in Egyptian law and how it needs to be undone. Once it's undone, then you can apply it to everyone. And I'll end, um, I'll end with this. Uh, as, as, as Hussein said, uh, I do think that there is a positive, uh, you know, a positive step to this. I, people, uh, Sarah and uh, Hussein and, and so many other people um, advocated for my release. I was sentenced to life in prison. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the, for the advocacy of those people. There are hundreds of people that were released, as, as Hussein mentioned most recently with EIPR. And as we speak today, journalists, literally journalists and activists are being released as we speak. That, the, 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 the sort of lesson learned there is advocacy works. And I am so happy that this network that uh, of academics and activists are coming together to sort of end repression and having, you know, this, this event and hopefully a lot more to educate people and to advocate. There is so much that we can do. There is a, a, a here in the United States and in Europe and other places, there is so much that we could do, we have to do. It's our responsibility and we can actually get some wins. And you know, this is a little bit of where, you know, me and Sarah politely disagree and everyone counts and we can get some people out of prison and we'll take it because it's not all or nothing. While we should still be advocating and saying that U.S. governments and, and European governments are complicit in this and are egging on this regime and are giving it the legs of legitimacy that it needs. But we should also simultaneously call for for these people's release because you, we don't know which one person will make a difference. Somebody getting released out of prison can have a huge impact both domestically and abroad. And there is a lot for us to do. People can call their congressman and tell them. There's uh, uh, Congressman Don Beyer and, and, uh, and, and Malnowski launched the Egypt Human Rights Caucus on the 10th anniversary of, of the Arab Spring and the protests in Tahrir Square. Call your congressman. There has been thousands of calls in the last few weeks to members of Congress across the nation, Republican and Democrats, asking them to join the Egypt Human Rights Caucus. There are people that there are, there have been 50, 200 and some European members that signed uh, a letter back in September asking for political prisoners to be released. There are there is activism in Geneva. There is so much. For us to do, I think it's about time that we sort of come together and and sort of advocate, advocate as hard as we can with every direction. Some of us have colleagues and friends that are in powerful positions that they can sort of move the needle on things. And I really, really think that this, uh, uh, you know, we we. It, we should, we should. You, every single sort of avenue, every single door that we can knock, we should knock. And 
we should try to advocate. Uh, there's the, the with the United States, there's the military aid, whether it's cutting it off or conditioning it. Seventy five million dollars is that was in December that was passed. That was uh, th- that's right now being used to get some folks released as we speak. And it's working. And so either that or cutting off all aid and sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, making sure that the government knows that we should not be complicit in these crimes. Um, and, and then there's also the, the international financial institutions, which is a lot more money that goes from them to the Egyptian regime that literally give it the legs to stand on the economic legs with not enough uh, governance and transparency benchmarks uh, that are met. And they need to be stricter. They need to make sure that uh, they do this as Egypt is sort of has a, a looming water crisis, a bulging youth population, unemployment rates, all of this stuff. It has a real issue at its hand. And so they need to have this. They, they need to understand that sort of, um, you know, either either they do this or they don't get the support, the diplomatic, economic and military support that they should. Um, and I, I really think there is some opportunities. I'm optimistic cautiously optimistic um, with 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 the Biden administration and the rhetoric that we've we've seen so far. You know, we'll see how if how that works with uh, with, uh, you know, their budget requests here in a few months. Um, and, and, and we'll kind of go from there. That's all I have. And uh, thank you so much, Elliot. Thank you, Mohammed, Sarah Lee and Hussein. This is a really great this 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 conversation has already taken shape uh, independently, each on your own. Um, and one thing that comes to mind that was sparked by your comments, uh, Mohammed, uh, about extraterritoriality, is thinking the the work you're doing is asking us to not think of Egypt and the United States as separate categories, and not to think of the U.S. Egypt relation as for a foreign affair, but right, right because what you're all of you, um, are, well, Sarah Lee and Mohammed most explicitly are describing as a set of ties and intersections, whether it's military aid, right, um, or the defense contractors or the lobbyists, and we have some questions. I want to we'll come to these questions in a second, right? But um, I, I was wondering if you could start speaking a little bit about these ties. Uh, in other words, that U.S. military aid is not necessarily spent in Cairo, nor is it even necessarily sent to Cairo, right? Much of it is spent here uh, employing Americans in industries that are serving serving uh, this dictatorship. Um, the, same true, the same is true, by the way, the intelligence services, right? Um, uh, the collaboration with Egyptian between American and and Egyptian intelligence services goes back at least to, um, I mean, most probably most famously with the collaboration around the extraordinary renditions um, uh, some some years ago. And finally, the way that your case, Mohammed, is, is showing us is that the this repression in Egypt leads to emigration. How many hundreds of thousands of Egyptians have left since 2013? That's that's a number I, I don't know off the top of my head. But many of them, many of the Egyptian diaspora relocates to places like the United States and then becomes advocates like yourself and speaking to their representatives, like in the Human, Human Rights Caucus in the House of Representatives. So I'm, I'm just kind of tying these threads together. I'm wondering if Sarah Lee or Mohammed, do you have any thoughts to start us thinking about, for instance, homegrown 
uh, American interests that are being served either in the lobby industry or in the defense contractor, defense contracting industries. Um, sure. I mean, I, I guess, first of all, I would be cautious in describing the defense industry uh, interests as American interests. They are defense industry interests, and I don't think the, they overlap with uh, uh, American interests. I think, on the contrary, to the extent that defense companies divert American government, American taxpayer resources uh, to their uh, projects of profit, um, th that, that actually serves counter to uh, American interests. And, and I think that is the nub of it. Why is the U.S. government, successive administrations, incapable uh, of acting in a way that actually reflects uh, true American interests in the Middle East, uh, much less the interests of the people of the region? And that's because they're not acting uh, in uh, the interests of the American people. They're acting in the interests of the lobbyists uh, who exist without competition, without challenge. And here I include, of course, the defense industry lobbyists, but also the very powerful lobbies of Israel, Egypt, Saudi and the UAE, uh, which work in unison now to support each other and to protect and promote each other. And so when Biden wants to so-called recalibrate the relationship with Egypt, he's not only taking on the Egypt lobby with virtually you know, very, very little domestic support or attention because the American public generally doesn't care about foreign policy issues. He also has to take on the lobby of the defense industry and Israel and Saudi and the UAE because they work as a team uh, and they mutually uh, uh, support and benefit from each other and they mutually uh, finance uh, and support the campaigns of politicians, both not just in the executive branch, but also in Congress, um, that serve their interests. So uh, uh, unfortunately, many people are profiting off of the misery of the Egyptian people. Um, yeah, I'll, 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 uh, I'll add two points. One, um, I think that there is... When you talk about interests uh, and, you know, to borrow from the Egyptian regime's sort of uh, dictionary, um, what happens with um, Sharif Mansour and his family? What happens to Ali Mahdi and his family? What happens to me and my family when I raise a U.S. lawsuit in federal court and as a reprisal, five of my cousins get arrested and my dad disappears until today, I don't know where he is. I don't know. He disappeared from prison. And I literally don't know from June 15th until now where he is or anything about him. And so you, you, what this is, and again, to borrow from the CC regime sort of dictionary, this is a breach of sovereignty. This is a breach of U.S. sovereignty. This is the Egyptian regime reaching into the United States and try and trying to silence me and trying to deter me from my constitutionally protected right to raise a lawsuit. And so it, this is like when, when you look at, um, uh, you know, what our sort of interests are here. And if we don't have a sort of an appropriate reaction to this as a government, uh, what happens is is that gets normalized, and then that starts getting you know widespread um, uh, 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 with with folks um, and and with other people that 
don't dare. And I'm already, I'm already getting, I, I know an Egyptian American who's running for, for office in a few years and he's scared. He's person is Egyptian American that doesn't talk about foreign policy. That's running for high office is scared to talk about Egypt because he, he, he thinks that his family is going to be at risk. That self-censorship is huge. Um, that's my first point. Second point, again, more on the optimistic side. I do think that human rights advocacy groups in Washington are winning the narrative. Um, uh, not because we're great at what we're doing. I think that um, the, there's the truth and we're just showing it <laughs> as it is. And um, and so you ask, like, how is that the case? The two articles that Sarah uh, alluded to, both David Ignatius and Simone Ledeen, uh, who's a, a former defense uh, uh, person on Middle East issues, both framed <laughs> their terrible articles and analyses on what's going on in Egypt through the human rights lens. And so you have, let's continue doing more of the same failed policies and arming the Egyptian regime to the teeth because that's the best hope for human rights. And so they're even try- they're framing it through the narrative that has been succeeding and that has been sort of, uh, uh, members of Congress and policymakers have began to open their eyes to. And so I do think that, again, I do think that, uh, you know, on the positive side, that the more and more people talking to even some Republicans who, as, as, as Hussein said, just bought these, you know, talking points about, you know, being, uh, you know, uh, Coptic minorities being treated better under CC, women being treated better under CC, all of this, you've seen groups then show, okay, where's, why, where's Patrick Zeki? Where's Rami Kamal and why is he charged with belonging to the Muslim Brotherhood? Or why is he under terrorism charges? Why? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the sectarian violence that still exists. When you talk about women, let's talk about Sulafa Magdi and Isra Abdul Fattah and Aisha and Huda Abdul Let's talk about all of these people. And so there has been a appropriate good pushback um, where advocates are learning how to write policy memos <laughs> and send them to members of Congress and policymakers, uh, basically breaking down the arguments of the, these highly paid lobbyists. And because the truth is on our side, there is literally no competition. And so, uh, but I do think that there is so much more room because as, you know, as, as was mentioned, we don't know how many, how many tens of thousands of people uh, there are. And so I really think that there is a, an opportunity for us where we are revisiting not just this moment of like, oh, Biden post-Trump era, but this sort of turning the page on the former U.S. national security priority of war on terror and counterterrorism. And we're turning the page on that and sort of entering into this like great power competition era. There is while folks are revisiting the past policies and whether to keep some of the past policies or change them up, this is a very, very good time. And this is why events like this are very well-timed to sort of, for us to be part of the conversation. And so I, I urge people that are listening, academics, activists, write, write publicly, write privately to your members of Congress, let people know if you know somebody in the administration, even if they're not working on a Middle East or an Egypt portfolio, educate them about Egypt. Maybe they they can then, you know, forward something or send something or have an input in a meeting that they're in because 
literally just chipping away little by little will get something. Uh, great. We have, we have some questions from the audience that I'd like to, uh, to bring into the discussion, if that's okay. Uh, Nader Hashemi writes, has Team Biden said anything about Sisi's torture state? As far as I know, the only thing I heard was that uh, Blinken mentioned that he raised human rights concerns in his bilat with uh, the Egyptian foreign minister. I don't know of anything else. But yeah, and and there was, I mean, the, the spokesperson uh, Ned Price uh, also spoke out about um, uh, didn't didn't speak out about torture, but spoke out when my family members were arrested and talked about general human rights condition and Secretary Blinken spoke about centering human rights and the security relationship. And so, um, again, it's promising rhetoric, whether we're going to see that in real action. I think in the next few months, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see we'll see how they sort of react. Uh, great. Along the same lines, uh, this is a, a question from Brett Murphy and then uh, Maura Stevens adding on to that, asking for any specific uh, information about uh, attempts in Congress to halt funding, um, where uh, um, lobby groups uh, or, or corporations in the arms industry uh, are, are, are lobbying against reform. Uh, do we have any, are there any specific stories that come to mind that could kind of show how this, how the sausage gets made here in DC? Uh, so, I, again, just to sort of harp on the moment, so we have a new chairman of the Appropriations Committee on the House side. Uh, Lowy was not great on Egypt. She saw Egypt through the prism of Israel and could not separate them. And so she's gone. We have a progressive chairman. The Foreign Ops uh, subcommittee chairwoman is also a progressive uh, a member of Congress. Um, and uh, they sort of uh, hold the pen. There's also the sort of uh, foreign affairs and, um, and armed services committees that contribute to this. But you have people um, on the House side, on the Senate side that are even uh, seeing that this is an uneven relationship that the Egyptian regime sort of feels entitled to this and um, is now crossing into U.S. borders to do things. So there are things I, you know, I'll tell you, um, when I was in prison, my, my the advocates for my release would tell me that as soon as they would go into a meeting with the senator, they would both get a call 10 minutes after from uh, uh, um, APAC from the Emirati lobbyists, from the Saudi lobbyists, from the Egyptian lobbyists. And so this is long practice from 2013, 2014. They've done this, they've, you know, sort of banded as a team and they've done that. Uh, and then the other ones are sort of uh, the, the, the defense contractors. Uh, there's 11 of them in, 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 uh, in DC that benefit directly off of the, the Egyptian uh, arms deal, it's $1.3 billion. As you said, the money doesn't get moved. They sort of get a credit card and they go and, and, and purchase these weapons here. And so um, there are interests there. It's <laughs> just continuous money that they've been getting for 40 plus years. And so uh, those people have had uh, um, sort of 
you know, their interests there and they're constantly lobbying with the appropriate committees. Um, but then again, there's, you know, the, the counter arguments in the past had been that this sort of uh, the leads to further radicalization, fertile ground for more, you know, radicalization, more repression, et cetera, et cetera. Um, here's a here's a question for for the entire panel from Gehad Qasay, uh, uh, who asks: In what ways have terrorism laws, I, I think, in Egypt, been weaponized against political prisoners? I know this is this is stuff you you know off the top of your head. Could you lay the playing field about how terrorism laws then are used to do a whole variety of things that they um, perhaps were meant to do? But it um, how how this is wrapped up thousands and thousands of people who have nothing to do with uh, armed uh, armed movements uh, or even politics. Yeah. Hossein, maybe you could jump in. Thanks. Sure, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, okay, so I think um, first when referring uh, to Egypt, I think it's important to note that a lot of uh, abuses that they commit, including enforced disappearances, for example, um, and a lot of the arrests actually, as even those, they are not in line even with Egyptian laws, which have been tailored to allow for as much human rights violations uh, as possible. So, uh, but I mean, but talking, for example, about the counterterrorism law. So, uh, in 2013, uh, the Constitutional Court, in uh, the, the highest uh, court in Egypt, it ruled that um, uh, detention, administrative detention, where you detain someone without uh, trial or without charges, illegal, is unconstitutional. Uh, so this put the authorization authorities um, in a bind where, on the one hand, they wanted to uh, arrest thousands and tens of thousands of opponents. Um, so they actually had to put them uh, through trial. Um, and indeed, they, they did. But actually, a lot of these trials, what happened um, is that when it came to the Court of Cassation, it would rule that these that the verdicts, the ridiculous verdicts of 25 years and death sentences and all of that were unlawful because there's not trial evidence at all. Uh, they, they relied at the time on any secret uh, NSA investigation files and so on. So that's why Egypt started to, you know, increasingly rely on this terrorism um, it charges. And they passed the counterterrorism law, uh, which is an extremely repressive law um, every sense of the word. First of all, it uses extremely vague definitions of everything. So for example, the law mentions um, mem um, that membership or joining or aiding a terrorist group uh, is a crime in Egypt. Now, it, the law does not specify the, anything about the, um, uh, about that uh, terrorist group, and all it requires is that this terrorist group uh, be using or trying to undermine national security or public order, uh, public um, you know like uh, public peace and all of that. So extremely vague definitions um, that then uh, security services and then prosecutors would use to detain people uh, pending investigations or even to convict them in some trials uh, later on. But even then, even even that extremely repressive laws that effectively gave uh, uh, the Egyptian authorities the legal pretext to arrest anyone they want, uh, even that was not enough. So the, the law itself was later, it was actually amended several times to become even more uh, repressive. Uh, the law also allows, uh, for example, security forces to detain people uh, without presenting them to a prosecutor for up to 28 days, which was apparently a way to uh, legitimate, uh, legitimize uh, enforced disappearances, which security forces are using um, all the time. But even then, if there are some procedure uh, guarantees inside the law that, you know, like prosecutors 
security officers and judges completely ignore um, likewise. But again, the security forces, uh, the authorities did not stop there. Uh, the latest now, right now, is that they are debating amending the law further, the counterterrorism law further, so that it becomes a crime um, as punishable by prison if <clears throat> if an owner of a flat, for example, fails to uh, register uh, someone with the, uh, the train the flat from them with the police station. So if you forgot apparently to register someone uh, or if for any reason you don't want to report the person or to uh, register the person with the police station, then you might end up uh, in prison and being accused of terrorism. And there is a value for from the insurance point of view of having these extremely vague laws and vague, and vague uh, provisions on counterterrorism and, and terrorism and extremism and all of that, because in addition to allowing them to have a legal cover to detain people, it also works precisely as uh, Sultan was mentioning earlier, which is that you know trying to label every, every all sort of opponents as terrorists or all their opponents as Islamists and extremists and so on. And the president himself, um, he described um, people in jail uh, as such in the 60 Minutes interviews that he had, where he referred to his uh, to the Egypt's effort to fight uh, extremism and so on. So it serves that value or that two goals of first of imprisoning people um, so it has a legal cover, but also internationally by being able to point at them and say, no, but they committed uh, terrorist, uh, terrorist crimes, they are being investigated uh, in uh, fair proceedings and so on. But then also the authorities not only stop at the counterterrorism law, in addition to that, they have the uh, terrorist entities law, uh, which also allows security, uh, it allows um, uh, prosecution to just basically um, lay or identify individuals that would be added uh, as terrorists without actually having any due process. It's basically the, the, a judge would decide on that without giving uh, anyone the opportunity to uh, to appeal or to challenge the legality of that. And this has been used against um, everyone from the far left to the far right, basically any political opponent. So it has been used against Yad Lailemi, against Rami Shah's BDS coordinator, and against um, a lot of people from uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and other security forces also have past other laws that have allowed them uh, to restrict um, legitimate speech and, um, and expression like the cybercrime law. And it has also been used against women uh, to silence women who, who do have TikTok videos, you know, young women having or doing TikTok videos, for example, have been arrested um, are as part of these laws. These laws have also been uh, used against members of the LGBTI community. So LGBTI activists um, that were uh, that were arrested over a flag that they carried, for example. One of the things that they were accused of, and they were prosecuted uh, through the Supreme State Security Prosecution Body, uh, which is supposed to be investigating terrorism. So really, the Egyptian authorities, from the, I mean, they have redefined terrorism to really mean any sort of opposition to the state um, or to the government and even or to the person of the president. And they are taking that further. So this is not stopping in Egypt, but they have also attempted to undermine the, the guarantees on uh, human rights uh, while counterterrorism through UN bodies by trying to change um, the language around that, by trying to push resolutions to weaken guarantees for human rights um, um, in this or in the international community. Great, Sarah Lee or Mohammed, do you want to add anything to that or we um, so we're getting a number of questions. Uh, so so one Question um, from Bruce Stanley asks, might, might we comment on the enhanced ties between private software and tech firms globally with Egyptian police to enhance data collection, surveillance, and face recognition? 
In other words, and, and again, this, this goes back to the ways in which uh, this system of repression is not, isn't just made in Cairo, right? It's, 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 uh, it's, it's bridged between, it's, it's, it's forged here and there. Um, any thoughts on that, Sarah Lee or, or Mohammed? Uh, I don't have specific information on this to be useful, I'm, I'm afraid. Okay, no problem. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, same here, honestly. It's not my area of expertise. I don't know if Hussein may have uh, something, but I, I don't have anything to add on that. Um, it definitely is something that we, we need to work more on, um, especially with uh, sort of hacking, uh, even of activists outside. Um, um, there's There's been a lot, whatever technology they're using, it's top notch and it one just wonders if they're getting this sort of high tech sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, capabilities, why they aren't truly using it to, you know, end the war on terror or end the Sinai insurgency, et cetera, and why they're so effective at doing it to crack down on dissent, but not so much for actual, like, effective uh, uh, counterterrorism. Uh, yeah, maybe uh, quickly on uh, on that. So yeah, so we do have. I mean, we have found evidence, um, and we published about how the Israeli authorities have been using uh, phishing uh, attacks, where they send uh, they have been sending emails, for example, to um, human rights defenders and activists and so on, so that when they click a link, um, the authorities uh, are able to access their uh, information. Now it's now who or what sort of software uh, that's being used? That's something that's uh, being investigated at the moment. Just last year, around September, we found evidence of a German-made uh, uh, spyware um, called FinSpy that was found um, uh, in Egypt. Um, but so far, it is it is a topic that uh, it is. I mean, it requires more uh, investigation because we know the authorities. I mean, we have the evidence the authorities are conducting phishing attacks. We have the um, evidence that the authorities are, um, you know surveilling some individuals and so on, but it's still it's still not, we haven't been able to identify all the relevant um, softwares that are being for, used by those sorts. So maybe just as, as some last questions, one, one question um, I'm, um, is coming out of a skepticism about the ability of the US government to speak in a moral voice about human rights in Egypt when, um, as the the question uh, asker asks, uh, points out, uh, human rights uh, we have a, a problem with with human rights here in the United States, especially when it comes to the rights of Black and Brown people. So uh, I'm going to just tie that together with a, another question from Hannah Assisi, who asks, "What beyond thinking about um, government representatives?" Uh, and case pressure and conditioning aid. What what else could people be doing, um, either in the Egyptian um, diaspora or um, American citizens or citizens in other countries that that enjoy or don't enjoy but have similar close relations with the CC regime? 
Um, I guess just taking on the, the first comment, I mean, the, the issue of, of American hypocrisy and double standards and, and, you know, its own human rights abuses in the U.S. versus uh, standing on a podium telling others to respect human rights, uh, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think uh, uh, as a government of the people, we can call out American government abuses uh, and we can call out abuses abroad. Uh, I think the issue with respect to the abuses in Egypt uh, is not that we want the United States to fix Egypt uh, or to fix its government. Um, that's not America's responsibility, uh, nor do I think they would do uh, a good job at it. Um, uh, look at the bungled efforts everywhere else that they've meddled in. I just want the United States to stop uh, uh, supporting abuses and to stop committing abuses in uh, uh, the uh, in Egypt. So I would I would phrase it differently, which is just as the United States carries out human rights abuses uh, against uh, black and brown people in uh, Egypt, it's doing the same in the United States. It's doing the same thing through its proxy, through a proxy uh, in uh, in Egypt, and both should stop. Um, the other thing I would say, and this is really saying it to Mohammed Sultan more than anything, is it's uh, it's it's not the the problem is if you advocate only for the release of prisoners uh, or if you advocate only for conditioning aid, um, uh, I think you're making things worse. If it's not accompanied by recognizing that the U.S. government is contributing to the harms, it's like asking the abuser uh, who 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 uh, uh, um, you know is providing a gun to a serial killer uh, to ask the serial killer to be nice to his dog, uh, you know, you know, and, and cheering when 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 the serial killer does something nice. Um, and if you don't address the systemic problem of America's role in enabling CC to uh, arrest and detain people, um, then, you know, getting one, get, get, getting, getting people released is just going to be an endless cycle uh, that never advances uh, 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 an actual change. Um, and it keeps us on this hamster wheel uh, of of uh, uh, making demands, seeing a release, then you know, somebody else is arrested, then more release we have to address the systemic problem of U.S. military, uh, economic, and diplomatic support uh, to Egypt. That's what's got to stop. You can also demand the release of prisoners simultaneously. But if you're not doing both, I don't think you're really moving the ball forward. Yeah, no, thank you for that, Sarah. I mean, we, we've had multiple conversations I, uh, uh, about this. Um, I, 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 the the bullet that was in my arm is recognition of the U.S. support for uh, military dictatorship. I'm fully cognizant of it. At the same time, I'm able to um, still continue to be a victim of the Egyptian regime and its ruthlessness, uh, but make sure that we also are um, advocating again uh, gradually, knowing full well that. Yes, it would be ideal to get all of the military aid uh, suspended or or or, um, or whatnot, knowing that that's not going to happen, seeing what we can get in the process. And if that means a few prisoners getting released, if that means uh, moving the needle on some things, uh, you know, I'll definitely take it. I uh, I was glad to get out of prison. I didn't want to spend uh, a life sentence for, for tweeting, but... 
Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know that we're that far off about the recognition versus what we're actually doing. But to answer the second part of the question, I think there is a lot more to do. I think um, that um, uh, professors, uh, you know, organizing themselves like. Uh, you know, the, 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 this network is and advocating on behalf of professors and sort of like a professional, um, in a professional way, engineers getting together, talking to their unions, talking to their syndicates, advocating on behalf of engineers, doctors, students. Um, I think there's, there's, there's so much to do there within this sort of, um, you know, professional uh, unions, professional syndicates, uh, academics, academic institutions um, that can address academic institutions that have ties with the Egyptian government. My, my university, the Ohio State University, has a program with, with, uh, with, with, the, with the Egyptian government, and that should not be okay. Um, and, and so I think addressing some of these, uh, there, there are many things to do. I think uh, organize, organize yourself, uh, you know, whether, again, it's, it's to contact your congressmen or your senators or your representatives, get together mobilize folks that share your same thoughts that are in your same field. Um, or, I mean, there's great organizations doing great work. I mean, uh, there's Amnesty, there's Dawn, there's POMED, there's the Freedom Initiative. There's, there's, there's so many organizations that are working on this, um, on this issue. And at the Freedom Initiative, we're building out our grassroots uh, um, sort of uh, arm right now. And we would love for you, for folks to get involved. Uh, visit us, uh, thefreedomi.org, and, you know, get, get sort of active and uh, Dawn and, and, and Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and all these other organizations still do. And so, um, you know, there's, there is, there is, uh, um, th- there is a lot to do there. And I think it's just about people thinking that they can make a difference um, and, and believing that they can, even if it's just getting a person released, even if it's just, you know, pushing the needle on the conversation a little bit. I think we sort of chip away at the larger narrative until we get to the sort of shared goals uh, that, that we hope to see in Egypt. So. Well, thank you to our panelists, uh, Sarah Lee Whitson, Mohammed Sultan, Hossein uh, Bayoumi. This was a really enlightening conversation, and I hope it's the first of many to come. Uh, not, not that I hope that we have to always talk about these sorts of subjects for the rest of our lives, but that it was a pleasure to meet you and hear your thoughts. And thank you to all of you in the audience for coming. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.